0: what's up everybody i'm back with another edition of the macro insights podcast where i'm bringing you an episode of the 2024 prediction twitter space that i had on a tuesday night and i am bringing that to the audio feed if you are not following me on social media what are you doing but you definitely should check me out at green candle i t as in green candle it uh, whoever taken the green candle tag or handle on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, somebody tell them that I deserve it. But anyway, follow me, Green Candle It, on all social media platforms. And big shout out to my sponsors, the Bitcoin Advisor. If you're looking to buy Bitcoin, find a secure way to store it. Get it off an exchange. Use all the benefits of Bitcoin. Well, I've got the place for you. It's the Bitcoin Advisor. Check out the BitcoinAdvisor.com backslash green candle, and I can help you do just that. Yeah, sign up for an informational session and much more. And shout out to Hodler's Official. That's H O D L E R S Official dot com. They have the best Bitcoin jerseys in the game. They have baseball and basketball jerseys available for you. To purchase right now so check that out and use promo code green candle to save 10 percent. and as always ladies and gentlemen this is not financial advice everything you hear on this podcast should not be taken as financial advice and before i go smash that subscribe button help a brother out and share the show now let's get into the episode whoosh well dear point we got the 2024 predictions i saw you tweeted yours out so I'm going to pin your tweet here at the top of the space, but I want you to kind of go through it with us. and Walk us through your 2024 predictions, dude, so we can yell at you and uh, tell you why you're going to be so wrong this entire year. Look like a deer in the headlights, you know, the usual.
1: I mean, I think uh, minus the pivot, dude, everything else pretty much came to fruition.
0: Well, I mean, a broken clock is right, you know, twice a day. So, um, you know.
1: Dude, that, that's one prediction my guy versus all the other ones versus all the other ones but anyways uh yeah let's uh let's get into it so um I guess I will start uh with the maybe with the emerging markets because i've I've put out a lot of stuff um kind of on that as of late um so you know l- kind of going into to this year i forget it's fucking 2024 uh kind of going into this year um i think that china is actually going to be relatively weak and I, i do think that trend's going to continue um i know some people are putting out stuff on on net injections of liquidity this that and the other but you know one thing that i have kind of like people have to realize is is Trying to stimulate the economy vis-a-vis liquidity um, in emerging markets doesn't really tend to work. Um, And the reason is, is because they have a relatively low, what is called savings multiplier right and so uh sorry they have a relatively high savings multiplier a relatively low consumption multiplier and so essentially what that means in like less economics jargon is that most people in these countries um choose to save over consumption and so like trying to target consumption via you know lowering rates etc doesn't really work or through kind of trying to stimulate the economy uh, through, you know, um, monetary policy doesn't really tend to work. Um, except like outside of like some things like, you know, the real estate sector for China, but even that has been massively, massively compressed. And so, you know, everybody who was long China last year, uh, got their face ripped off because, you know, and that's what I was saying, there isn't going to be this grand China reopening it wasn't it was very muted uh chinese growth has been relatively weak Um, the real estate market is is in contraction both investment um and overall like um like mortgage credit so you know in that aspect i I don't think that china is going to be the place to uh look towards going into 2024. um i think that chinese growth on an annual basis this year will probably be about four percent so I actually think China will probably reduce um, their GDP target down from five to four, um, and so I, I think that that's something to kind of look towards. And I know a lot of people keep getting harped up on on you know China's stimulus, et cetera, and all the the PBOC net injections, but those haven't really done a lot. Um, I like India, uh, just but India is more of a long term long term growth place. So I'm not saying that. It's going to be anything that materializes in, in a year or two. But I do think that India will become the new China. Um, and I, I put stuff out on that, right? Like, you know, um, today, uh, essentially, we're seeing the Chinese are spending less and less on actual investment. Um, their manufacturing sector is is slowing substantially. Um, the United States is starting to bring some of that production back home. We, You know, we got um, uh, one of the productivity numbers out. I think it was about a month ago um, and you know the preliminary was 4.7 it was actually revised up to 5.2 so the united states is starting to rebuild its manufacturing and industrial base which is good you know for american jobs and i, I think that we will start to become you know less and less reliant on the chinese um and uh i i think that india as well shares kind of very similar values and certain aspects um, of of that of the uh, of the united states etc um and they at least in the region seem to be more open to um the idea of like you know continued globalization and globalization being good for the economy where it seems like some of these bricks countries are trying to shut themselves off and even modi himself took a very staunch you know approach that no we're not trying to look to bypass the u.s dollar etc because i know we'll probably touch on bricks at some point today um but yeah I, I like india and then i like brazil uh as well i like the latin american countries i think brazil will probably be good colombia chile um those are the areas in which i i like within the latin american um uh Nations and and Brazil is actually very interesting as a commodities producer because I was looking at their terms of trade and again this is like kind of like economics like mumbo jumbo but like when when you look at the terms of trade usually the the effective exchange rate um, or the real effective exchange rate which is essentially a basket of Brazil's largest trading partners um, and how you know the real measures against its largest trading partners is measured. Um, their effective exchange rate is down, but their terms of trade has absolutely skyrocketed. And so essentially what that means in in more simplistic terms is that Brazil's commodity prices are actually below that of the world price of commodities. And so, you know, we've seen a massive boost, um, in Brazilian exports. And I think that that's going to continue as people start to look towards Brazil, just because you know, one, um, it's going to increase demand because right now their commodities are actually um, um, are actually at a discount relative to what uh, is being offered uh, throughout the rest of the world. And so I, I think that that's probably going to be good for the Brazilians. Uh, and then, you know, you have Argentina Ar- Argentina, it seems that the market is uh, somewhat happy. Um, with Malay and so you're starting to see capital flows into Argentina as well but obviously Argentina has a has a lot of risk uh, just from like a inflation and currency debasement standpoint. But, you know, if they do end up uh, going on the, um, you know, pegging to the U.S. dollar, I do think that the uh, Argentina will have their currency strengthened uh, tremendously. And obviously, Millet himself has kind of taken a stance and and said that they have no intention in joining the BRICS nations, which is good. Um, so, yeah, I, I like the Latin American countries as well, kind of into 2024 and um, I, I think that commodities will do very well. Um, again, I'm, I'm a commodities tourist, and I've, I said that in Jeffrey's space, so I get, take everything on, on the commodity side with a grain of salt. Um, but I think into the first half of 2024, oil will probably be range found around 80 dollars a barrel or so, kind of you know, that's not including any sort of geopolitical risk. That you start to see that might have you know uh, caused spikes uh, spikes in oil overall, but um, I do think that oil will probably be around eighty dollars um, a barrel. Uh, and in the first quarter, I, I think that there'll be kind of weakened weaker demand, um, and you'll get increased from non OPEC nations: uh, Brazil, um, Guyana, Canada. Um, and, and that production will come online amid continuous constraints from OPEC. Um, but then going into the second half, I actually think oil will be higher. I think it'll move between 85 and $90 a barrel. And the reason is that is um, kind of what I think is going to happen is crude demand th- is, is going to strengthen, uh, given, I think, the overall you know strength of the global economy going into 2024. Um, and what you're essentially going to see is... You know, kind of my prediction is in the second half of 2024 that uh, stock draws will outweigh builds um, in the first half. And as a function of that, you're going to have an overall tighter oil market um, into the second half of of 2024. Um, And so that's kind of the prediction on commodities as well. So I think that this year as well, commodities are going to um, do extremely well. and uh, I, I also think that, you know, geopolitical risk could also give them, um, uh, you know, um, that volatility undertone that, you know, could obviously uh, give oil uh, and other commodities a bit of momentum as well. And I mean, we've seen that uh, and what we're seeing with some shipping contracts, you know, those have gone absolutely parabolic. I think like INE, uh, European contracts are they they went from about a thousand to like 1700 bucks um given everything that's going on in the red sea and then i think obviously oil and gas will probably um especially oil will probably end up getting a boost um depending on what the houthis do um and if they kind of continue to target ships and then as well as if you know how houthi uh does make good on the promise that you know uh they might start to target saudi arabia and refiners there in in both the uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. I think that could also obviously add further upside to uh to oil. Um so yeah that's kind of I think everything I kinda of went on for like five
0: minutes there. But all right, yeah that was great. Um but uh yeah I guess I kinda wanna dive deeper into the oil markets because you said we'd probably dive dive in more into OPEC. Uh, so I guess, like, how do you see that that relationship kind of playing out? Obviously, there's a lot of geopolitical risks and, you know, fluctuations, but it does seem like um, the South American countries, like you mentioned, Guyana, I see like a lot of these countries getting into the oil and gas industry and starting to, um, you know, obviously there's you know, some geopolitical tensions there, too, like in guyana venezuela has been talking about potentially invading guyana um and kind of going in through there so obviously there's some you know with uh geopolitical tensions with the opec countries but do you see any i guess potential geopolitical conflicts with the uh you know uh, south american countries as well in latin america
1: yeah brendan I'll, I'll I'll, i'll be honest like in all honesty, like my geopolitical like knowledge is, it, it pretty much begins and ends in the Middle East. Anything outside of that, like, I, I just I don't know about. Like, I don't have family in in like Latin America. Um, like, I, I've I've watched their economic data and stuff like that, but on like the geopolitical front, of like, you know, shifting tides, etc. Um, that I wouldn't be as well versed in, so I, I have no idea on on the Venezuelan Guyana thing. Um, i do think that at least um on the nations that surround opec like you know in in the gulf um those guys are going to have continued ge- uh, geopolitical risk and i i do think that things are going to continue to escalate um until the us just like sends a very strong message to the hoosies like if you guys don't stop doing this we will like fuck you up um but like until we do that i i do think that they're going to continue to just make things very unstable in the um uh kind of in the red sea um and it even seems now that like the saudis uh that guy who looks like the evil guy from uh from aladdin um uh you know uh i I don't remember his name but he's like their spokesperson i mean even he's like oh yeah you know we stand with the palestinians and this that and the other so it seems now even the saudis are starting to flip-flop and the israel deals off the table so you know i i think that um those guys are going to have a lot of risk until somebody actually um, gets everything that's going on there under control and you know until that happens I I do think that there will be a lot of geopolitical risk at least in the region I think Maris actually came back out today and said they are again stopping going through the Red Sea because I know that they are going to try to resume and then I think one of their ships was targeted or two of their ships were targeted um, like yesterday or the day before um, and now they've, again, started to say that they're no longer going to be utilizing their Red sea. So So, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's going to be that's going to be the real question mark um, going
0: into the and uh, in, into 2024. I see we got Joe with his hand. up. Joe, go for it, man.
2: Hey, thanks, dear. Good to hear you. You know, I just have to remark, you've got such a. Uh, wide-ranging knowledge on so many different topics for such a young guy i always like to hear you talk and uh thank you for that um are you going to be doing a space with uh tracy tomorrow and Razor? did i get that right yeah at 11 a.m. yeah great yeah. i'll be tuning in hey look i just wanted to gently push back i look i know india is a favorite kind of like thing for everyone i've been to india a few times um, look, India does have a lot of things going forward. It's got the largest population in the world. The English is widespread. They're becoming a technological center. But man, I mean, it's not going to be China circa 1985. I, it's um, there, There's a lot of issues with corruption. There's a lot of issues with infrastructure. I mean, to go 60 to 80 miles, um, you're going to be on a very narrow, rutted road. With enormous double-decker buses passing you within inches, and it's going to probably take you in, uh, you know, two hours to make that trek. So I understand in the information age that they may be able be able to leapfrog that with information professionals, technology professionals, and I'm not, I'm not uh, downplaying that. I'm just saying everybody needs to temper their enthusiasm just a little bit. Because there is widespread corruption and there is severe issues with physical infrastructure. Um, not only in India, but in a lot of these developing countries that we often talk about. Um, it, it's, it's really, it's, it's kind of a miracle what China did over the last 20, 25 years. And I think uh, the best days of China growth is behind us. Um, and it's, I I don't think we should expect to see another China on the horizon. I mean, we've been trained to do that because we saw the Asian tigers, you know, we saw Japan in the eight in the eighties, then the Asian tigers in the nineties, then the, you know, the rise of China. And we're looking for that next one. I, there may not be a next one. I'm not saying India is a bad investment. I'm just saying that they do have a lot of challenges, um, and people ought to be aware of that. Uh, but, uh, with regard to the Houthis and all that, yeah, I mean, look, all they need to do is just take off the shackles. The U S Navy will just, you know, literally pound them into oblivion. Uh, it'll take a couple days, maybe a week or two. It'll be fun for those guys to do the targeting and to drop hellfires on their heads. And, um, I promise you it'll, it'll stop and it'll stop really quickly. We don't talk about Somali pirates anymore. And there's a reason for that. And it really didn't take the full force and might of the U.S. Navy to cut down the pirates. It just, took, it just took a couple, you know, early Burke destroyers with some SEAL teams on there and some Zodiac boats. I mean, really, um, these guys are going to be outmatched. And uh, it just takes political will. And I, honestly, I'm puzzled why we haven't seen that political will exert itself yet. We are seeing NATO ships heading out that way. We do have U.S. Navy ships on there on scene. I I just think it's a matter of time, but when it happens, it'll happen quickly. And uh, so be careful with your um, oversized leveraged bets on shipping. It's done really well so far. And I think it'll continue to do well. You should follow Ed Finley Richardson if you're into that kind of thing, because he's the best shipping follow in all of Twitter um um and i'm not you know i'm relatively bullish on shipping but uh, you shouldn't be buying it just because you think the houthi's are going to stop red sea flow for the next year that's all i had
1: yeah i mean joe you're you're probably right about india um i mean there there is the possibility and i might be overly optimistic it's just like you know, at the same time, you want to see somebody who, you know, shares kind of similar values and isn't always looking to challenge more or less. And again, how much of, of this is all posturing, but like the West, I, I think is something that, you know, I, I'm kind of looking at. That's, that's why I would be more optimistic about India. Oh, no, look, I I share
2: your optimism and hope. I mean, they're the world's largest democracy, if if a faulty, you know, somewhat faulty democracy. They do have their issues. We don't have to get into that. But they are the world's largest democracy. Uh, Like I say, English is widespread. Um, We do share a lot of common values. Um, I would love to see India continue to be a rising power uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, So I share your optimism and hope. I'm just saying that people ought to temper their enthusiasm. I don't think we're going to see a 20-year stretch by India akin to what we've seen over the last 20 years from China. Um, although I'm, that doesn't mean it's not a bad place to invest. I mean, I mean, I think we could see a continuing um, vacuum of of intellectual jobs going that way, especially in technology, uh, because those uh, technology workers work for a fraction of the cost that they do here in Silicon Valley. So um so i i do share that i if if i i do share where you're coming from on that if 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 it is a bit more tempered that's all I just was trying to flavor it down a little bit that's all
1: yeah yeah i mean you're they're, they're you're definitely right I think a lot of people have been looking for the next china thus far. nothing has really ever gotten there um but yeah i mean yeah i i do agree even if they're not the next china, i do think that they're still a lot of optimism around the things that india can offer and you know i guess the good thing about india is most of you know when we were sending a lot of labor over there um it was for things in like you know engineering etc um computer science and I, i know that they have a very well educated population and so um you know whereas like you know, in China, they call everyone an engineer. Like, if somebody works on a on a shop floor, like putting together boxes, they call them like a box. engineer. I'm not even joking. Like, this is actually a thing, like a like a box engineer. <laughs> they're not legitimate engineers, so they're they're very like you know, kind of loose with the uh, with the titles it's, in China. Whereas, look, I
2: mean there there are there are Canadian Indians and Ameri- or Americans from South Asia in this room that could probably speak to it better than me, and I would welcome their I would welcome and respect what they have to say. Um, here's, here's one hopeful sign with regard to technology. I look, I've got a good friend who's working in my town for Microsoft and he doesn't have a college degree. He just knows the technology. He's working on their AI platform and he knows the tools and they hired him after he passed the test and showed proficiency. So you don't need a professional qualification or degree or anything like that to do some of these really important and groundbreaking technology tasks. And I think that's really where India could really do well. Um, I, I'd be a little bit more you know, skeptical about professional certifications and degrees, because a lot of times you you literally buy your way into a university, it's not, it's not as much a meritocracy as it is, oh, you can pay 10 lakhs, maybe you can get into the University of Madras. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Oh, you're not doing too well. This, you know, We'll get you through on grades. And I'm sorry if I'm offending anybody there. This is just you know, my my understanding of the way things work over there. Not to say good students don't get into the system and make it through. I'm just saying there is a good deal of corruption. If you come from a rich family, you probably will get into a good university, and you probably will graduate, regardless of how well you do. Whereas a lot of these technology tasks... Specifically in some of the more groundbreaking areas, they just want to see that you've got that technical proficiency and you can pass their proficiency test to get in the door and then you can help them work on that next AI thing that next graphics thing that next programming coding issue and and I, I think in that regard India could really blow the rest of the world away um, it, it's just more when it comes to structural things and um, um, you know the the structural corruption that can sometimes inhibit you um, uh, uh, you know, uh, one of my, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for that that can inhibit, um, just trailblazing type. Um, technology discoveries. Yeah, discoveries discoveries and stuff like that. But I've talked long enough. I don't don't want to filibuster here. I'll I'll, I'll shut up, but.
3: Joe, it was a a pleasure and I want to wish you a happy new year. It's been a long time.
2: Oh, good to see you, David. Great to see you. Always good to see you. Always Always good to to see you, my friend.
3: And I think that one of those big blows that might restrict technological developments because if we do look at like, let's say our traditional Ivy League uh, sectors within the United States and even Canadian institutions and even European institutions, unfortunately what you said is extraordinarily valid. If you have a large amount of capital and you're not, let's say, the most proficient within your grades, there is some le- levy that could be made within your abilities to obtain that diploma. We just need to look at the average CFA and other forms of programs and we can see that that, that, that eventually occurs. But if you're looking at, like, let's say, your Indian Institute of Technology and or other forms of tech institutions within India, um, on aggregate, one, they have the a, a population and a demographic that's much more, that's lower than 25, if I'm not mistaken, the majority of their population. Um, and last time I read it was around like a, the, the 50 to uh, 55 percentile. So I need to revise my actual uh, metrics there. But in, in, in the actual accepting rates towards these institutions, it's extraordinarily limited. But I will say that India, since 1969, has had a nationalized banking institution. And as what you just mentioned, what are the potentialities of, let's say, hiccups that could play within the investment cycles of India is specifically this we just need to look at the telecommunication sector in the last 40 years and it gives you the primary example right? one of the big things that occurred within the last 20 years specifically was the negation of computers like actual formal computer systems and the the, 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 whether you like it or not they were patient and virtuously waiting for uh, smartphones to actually get more and more comparable and once smartphones got more and more comparable where they had the applicabilities of having let's say a computer power output this is where you saw An actual like increase within the uh, productive output on one uh, software and two actual technological production within India and it it was very interesting because the cost to actually being able to uh, produce these let's say higher tech related type products is now increasingly lowering for these Indians one and or even other African nations and so by definition it offers a level of edge one due to the telecommunication sector having more network and broadband communication communications but it's still something to be caveated having a nationalized banking system and they have very spec spe- spe- uh, speculative uh, 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 a CLO and uh, not CLO but they have a specific uh, uh, credit line association to institutions that could be called back immediately I have to do more research into that because there is some levels of risks in investing within in Indian institutions in relations to their credit distributions and their actual uh, margin compression that could occur just due to that one fact right a nationalized banking system and a, re, a redefinition within let's say your institutional reforms and, and and political whims could create some complexities um and then I, 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 there's a lot of companies that could actually be brought into play um specifically like a flight company uh, that won't be mentioned i think it was uh, king airs but long story short there's some very interesting movements occurring within india so well brought up happy to see you guys
2: Uh, Uh, yeah before I I go I just want to say dear anytime you want to talk about you know like talk shit about MBS and shit like that I'm here for it so just I I just it just motivates me and makes me want to do push-ups so I just want to throw that out there yeah maybe on a a non-recording space (laughs) (laughs) good idea
1: don't want to end up like a shogi supposed to go to Turkey, guys like i have to go to turkey in the summer i'll I'll send like an sos if if i get invited to any embassies right like if i'm not don't don't go in any
2: embassies okay please just stay just (laughs) stay in public (laughs) restaurant areas along the water
1: (laughs) crowded crowded areas but yeah yeah so i'm like should probably probably uh, you know clean clean it up before I go over there because God knows anything can can happen. But yeah, yeah, on a, on a non-recorded space, I would be more than more than happy to. to also share consider
2: dyeing your hair and maybe changing your facial hair if you have if you have some, shave it off. If you don't, grow a beard. You know, little things like that. Find, find some big large sized sunglasses. Wear a baseball hat at all times. Little little tips like that might help you avoid trouble.
0: Trouble.
1: What? What was that Tom Cruise movie where he had all those masks? Was that Mission Impossible? I think it was, right?
0: Nah, dude, it was The Mask, one hundred percent. No, not The Mask. That was a yeah, joke. Jim Carrey The
3: Mask. We'll just say is a modern classic. Let's just leave it there.
0: All right. Well, we got uh, my man Shane up here. Shane, what's going on, brother? How are you?
4: What's up, brother? I'm- Right now. give me like
0: five or ten minutes i'm kind of listening in here so gotcha gotcha we'll get a real estate update from you in a second we got nishan up here too nishan how's it going man did you have something for us
5: yeah i was oh how's it going happy new it's year good uh I would, happy new, thank new year you. thank you yeah i was just uh gonna say that you know if 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 you take a look at the the Cryptocurrencies? Do you guys do you guys take a look at? You guys talk about cryptocurrencies at all here?
0: Uh, Bitcoin only, man. I don't think we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight, though. So um, if you got something else, we'll we'll dive into that.
5: Well, I think it's interesting how that the Nasdaq 100 outpaced the the markets, and when you take a look at IT sector, I think the need to go from soft to hard. And I think firmware being the ultimate solution and the the middle ground for consolidation in the industry, and looking for new leaders in IT is still going to go strong. The need for productivity in the economy structurally is so apparent that it just seems to be like from a macro standpoint in stocks, it just seems to be apparent that like a lot of insiders and corporations are scrambling to invest in ai so that's kind of the uh that's kind of the button but i don't think it's quite the answer yet
1: sorry just to, just a question do i get a belgian white or do i do i just go with bex
3: go for the belgian white you know you, how many times do you have it okay i'm getting Bex. I knew it. I knew it. It's, it's just the opposite here.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I, I guess back on the, like the AI thing, I think you know, um, there's a lot of uh, yeah hype around it right now. I'm kind of a more wait and see uh, how it kind of all plays out type of person to be honest, because it seems like every company is kind of doing the same thing. Um, You know, we saw obviously the dot-com boom. Um, I will call like the last, I don't know, five years with like FTX and Celsius and, you know, those kind of companies, almost like a crypto boom. It seems like anybody that put blockchain behind something uh, pre-COVID was able to get just a, you know, a shit ton of money. Um, so I think like the trend is kind of moving to towards AI. Everybody thinks that they can automate things with AI. I think that it's going to take a long time to develop. Um, and the reality of it is that a lot of AI projects will probably fail. Um, some of them won't. So, um, and some of them will be, uh, you know, beneficial, but uh, I think it's kind of a crapshoot at this point, point. Um, and everybody's just trying to get in and develop their own AI. So I don't know if we're necessarily, I guess, there yet um, when it comes to comes to that. Thanks. I don't know if David, yeah, David has it's, in it's,
3: it's a key point that you brought up. I mean, like w- one thing I will say, mainly since 2000, and dear point, you, could, you can even uh, confirm this, but we've had formal AI and machine learning type programs within the banking institutions for a significant period of time. Most of it is just proprietary and black box, right? And by definition, what was ChatGPT? It was the revelation and revolutionary, let's say, and I put that in air quotation marks for its actual uh, market relevance, but nonetheless, it was was the uh, applicability for your basic consumer to have access to this. I think that if you're looking at, and I will reference the big uh, companies and big advertisement, it, it is fundamentally changing your um, 3D animation skills, right? If you're actually seeing Nike and you're looking at uh, commercials and you're looking at other forms of, let's say automated uh, advertisement, it creates an expedited uh, productive output and flow. And it, it, in fact, the visual effects that you can even retain via these AIs will, might even be like let's say uh uh, more pertinent than the 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 the, uh, 3d animated rendering that might be human uh developed and it will take less time because of the prompts obviously and i think that if you're looking at the applicabilities and uh and uh, aspects towards these like multimedia companies it is going to be a a slight threat for the multimedia type companies right we we see that clearly already if i just myself wanted to produce a basic uh commercial with very uh very let's redundant and and, and clean like images and it was just like a a redundant by uh like recreating a very popular commercial today i'd be able to do it in in Three minutes, and um, before then, I wouldn't be able to do that in less than three hours. Plus, all the competencies that would be required in order to actually filter and develop such, let's say, animations. And so, by definition, it does have this edge. Now, when we're looking for, let's say, your basic like uh, accounting works, your financial works, and other forms of uh, of high, let's say, literacy type works, it's it's fairly interesting as well because most companies, and I'm speaking like from internal affairs here, we, we will develop our own forms of let's say proprietary. Uh, machine learning programs in order to then filter it within a specific uh, defined logic, if you will. And then from there, it's just a human, uh, a human automated, it's, it's human connected. So it's like a semi-automated type development where in essence, it's a symbiosis between a very pertinent human that's able to actually have his expertise um, expedited via this, uh, this machine learning program. Um, I'm not saying it's a revolutionary thing in the sense that institutions have had access to them for a long time. It's just now on a consumer level, you see a lot more applicabilities and access accessibility. And that's where it becomes interesting.
0: Dear, do you have uh, any comment on the, on the AI space while you're uh, chugging along some brewskis? No, no, I was, I was buying them.
1: I, I just, you know, I, I like to go with the Germans because they have those, those uh, what are they, the, the German brewing laws. And so it's like, you know, because of that, I feel the quality is pretty consistent. Whereas the Belgians... they gave us french fries right so i mean we trust those fucking guys to make beer anyways uh the the, uh sorry david just a shot at the french and the belgians but can't um, discount the the bordeaux uh,
3: wines though thank you nishan absolutely bordeaux is a great region right Sure. Yeah, well, now we're talking wine, not beer,
1: guys. So the French. You know what,
3: dear? We just talk about culture and refinement, and you bring it back to, like, you know, the basics. It, and it's, it's, okay. it's okay. Isn't, isn't
1: 1692 a uh, French beer?
3: Dude, that beer tastes like balls.
1: Anyways, sorry. No, I, I don't have any thoughts
3: on AI.
0: All right. Well, uh yeah, I I don't know. Let let's see if uh is Shane Shane back here. Uh Shane, can you give us a real estate update? I want to hear your predictions for 2024 if you've got some, my friend, which I'm sure you do.
4: I I don't know if they're new to 2024. I feel like they're the same that they were for the fall of 2023, but we're just going to see what was a kind of a trend that was starting to continue. Um obviously there's there's a there's a monster question mark with the interest rates but I will say this um what I think is interesting that's already proven out through the last quarter and going into this quarter is first of all guys like when I speak about the real estate market my predominant and cognitive bias is towards investing but it doesn't mean that I don't understand the other pieces that are, you know, that are working around us that can affect things. So, you know, I always teach my clients to work from a fire academy. And the FIR part of that is your financial position, your investment goals, and, you know, your risk tolerance. And right now, those things are king in, you know, who's buying. But think of it, think of right now that, you know, what one of the things that's been holding, we have this massive gridlock, you know, Quigley calls it something else. The, the guy that was talking about a lot of stuff from the inflation from the um, 80s. But. Yeah, there's there's this gridlock because nobody wants to sell or buy their house because the guy that's going to sell the house doesn't feel like he can get interest rates or a good payment on the house that he's going to buy. But that gridlock is loosening because circumstances are creating a loosening of that. And I think other people weren't just – they weren't waiting because of interest rates. They were actually waiting to make sure that the market cooled down and that they weren't buying something that was going to lose five or 10% value within probably 60 days or six months after they bought it. So now that we're kind of seeing things settle in the real estate market, there's, pen-up buyer, there's a pent-up buyer pipeline, which pretty much con- is, consists of a couple of different categories, right? You've got people that are buying first houses and primary houses. And within those primary houses, think about this. You've got those that can buy what they want they were just holding off because they wanted to see, make sure the market wasn't going to pull back too far. You have those that can buy close to what they want, but they kind of needed the market to cool off and give them a little help. And then you have those that have to buy with concessions. Whether you're a primary buyer or a first buyer, most of that buying pool has to buy with concessions. Now, they need someone to pay those closing costs because what they have to put money down on is really much, it's pretty much all they have or all they want to put down on that property. And so if you look at the last two quarters, people have been able to buy the concessions. They've seen a pullback in prices. And so a lot of the people in that pipeline that couldn't buy before because they needed concessions, they're able to buy. The problem is there isn't enough inventory. Um, And the affordability narrative is still a big issue with interest rates, but the inventory issue is the bigger issue. But here's the thing. As interest rates go down, that's going to solve both those problems, right? So I think that's, that's what's interesting about this. I think there's a lot of people. And I, we've had more purchases and more act, activity within my circles and in people that I'm even helping do stuff um, in the last probably 60 days than we have had in the last six months. And we had more in the last six months than we had the last two years. So you definitely see people picking up and buying stuff. And one of the things that's going on right now is a lot of people, now that they've seen prices settle, now that they've seen that things are at a certain point, they know that they're getting a good yeah. price. And they know that once the interest rates, good investors know this, Once an interest rates go down, that property is actually going to go up in value because the demand narrative is going to come back into the picture. Now, it's not going to do anything like it was doing before. So anybody who tells you that is full of shit. Um, There are very, very few markets that are going to be able to find the kind of equity pace and appreciation that we were enjoying pre-corona and even during corona. But there are some markets that are going to pop a little bit more because they've got a lot of pent-up demand. And, you know, you could see some best and final offers like we were seeing earlier um so that becomes interesting i think the other thing i'll point out there real quick brian uh, is um is brandon is that when you look at um the investor situation um you finally had a lot more at least in what i will call smart purchase markets where there was either strong cash flow or there's really good uh economic factors that will favor these markets the minute that we kind of get this gridlock out of place and interest rates down uh, you 've seen a lot more smart, savvy investor activity for three reasons: number one, they don 't feel like they 're buying into something that 's going to you know drop immediately after they buy it. Number two, they recognize the opportunity of it 's going to go up for their burst strategy somewhere right down the line, so they 're going to be able to get in there and get money back out of it. They anticipate you know probably six to twenty four months from now when interest rates go. Um, uh, uh, down because then when interest rates go down, the values will go up a little bit. And and the third thing is because there's not so much competition with institutional acquisition. So we haven't had near the institutional acquisition um, in competitive markets that we had before. You You gotta remember places like Atlanta, Denver, Austin, and the Carolinas and Florida, you know, Texas, they were getting a lot, a lot of activity from big boys buying up single family properties left and right. They're not out there so much anymore. Um, they're not even taking the kind of positions and buying out whole developments the way they were before, so that's actually given that person a chance to get in there and there are some investors who, even though they want to buy a deal, they still have the need to keep moving their monopoly board forward because uh, they try to balance uh, their deductions with the cash flow that goes up every year and the last three years they haven't really been able to do that and finally the last six months to sixty days they've been able to do that so even though they're not buying like the best cash flow deals, they need that defensive value of you know depreciation, tax deductions, and everything that comes along with that, and then they know that they're hedging into a better situation tomorrow. So I don't know. There's lots of interesting things going on. My biggest prediction would just be to to pay attention to the fact that it's a great time to buy now um, in strong cash flow markets. Even though the cash flow, don't you know, you need to cash flow something that makes sense. Don't be stupid, but you might want to be optimistic and say, what would this look like if I had this loan at a percent to two percent less? Because that's the reality that most of us are betting on is that, you know, within the next, you know, probably nine to 18 months, those interest rates come into a place that's better and we can see a track. And then within 12 to 24, maybe 36 months, we can see exactly where they're going to end up so we can refi and create a cash flow margin. So if it's a strong growth market or it's a strong cash flow market, there's a lot of people that are starting to pick up properties now because people like me and others that have been talking about this for a while see this as being a good price point, uh, not even though it's even though it's not a great cash flow point. So you know, I buy that property for $300, $350,000 today. That probably when things come back will be you know go up twenty five to seventy five thousand. And then I'll refi it, and if you look at you know the cost-benefit analysis of my cash flow, you know that I don't get during that time versus how much less I bought it for, I'm still way out ahead in the next like eighteen to thirty-six months. If all that makes sense in some sort of
6: kind of quasi
4: layman terms, quasi-investor terms.
0: Yeah. So just the the ability to wait it out essentially is is you know would be beneficial here. It sounds like Shane, but I think we got a. Money Penny with a, with a question. So, Money
6: Penny, uh, what you got for us?
0: Welcome to the stage.
6: Thank you. Uh, yeah, I've actually got a couple of questions. I'm based in the UK. I've been in a lot of the Canadian economic rooms talking about the macro level recently because um, Canada is actually remarkably similar to what is going on in the UK, albeit the problem that we've got now is a lot of legislative, legis- legislative, <laughs> my God, I can't get my words out, behavior um, in anticipation. Obviously, we've got a probable, probable election coming up. And uh, a lot of immigrants that are not going to be getting on a plane to Rwanda, um, which is probably not a good thing to mention today, actually, sadly, after what's been happening with aeroplanes. Um, I wanted to ask, I um, saw a documentary a little bit earlier on the back of the news in the UK that um, all these big tankers, the big Maersk, M-A-E-R-S-K I think it is tankers, that are stuck up the Suez Canal. Um, they're talking about uh, 12% of all cargo um, is now diverting, going around different routes. Um, apparently the Americans over this weekend put together some new treaty to try and get people to all shake hands and be happy and it didn't work out. So all the big shipping and cargo um, people are hacking up prices on everything that is is being uh, brought over from the east. Um, obviously you guys are in a different location um, but also um, in south china sea which takes over 50 percent of all the other and and probably some of it double cargo um we got a a initiative out there with a load of ai powered unmanned orbs vessels and missiles um that are being demonstrated by the chinese navy um, which to me seems a little uh threatening certainly the timing of it Um, I'm seeing another Suez. I really am. Um, and I'm concerned about it. I just wanted to get your views on that. Thank you.
0: David, do you have a David or dear? Do you guys have any insight on this? so
6: yeah, and iran entered it today as well that's another reason why i'm talking oil and Suez and all the rest of it
1: well like people got that uh kind of confused i know they said like an irgc ship entered but like it, it's an army ship and they've had those in the red sea for a long period of time so i don't think that's nothing new i i think the in that aspect the market's just kind of fear mongering like oh an iranian ship is in the red sea but the military has been there for a long time. Um, the, but I, I mean, again, I think that most of the risk from, from shipping has started to be priced in. I mean, we like, you know, you saw some things like ein um, which are like the, the European uh, tanker futures. Those went like pretty parabolic. And yeah, I mean, there's even like a lot of the shipping stocks today got a move on, on a lot of this. Um, but i mean i i think more so you're probably just going to have massive premiums for insurance costs um and all of that will start to flow through to the tankers bottom lines i mean i think right now to go through the red sea um like a ninety thousand uh was like 150 grand uh additional for insurance cost i think s p put something out on that like a few days ago um and then for smaller ships, it's about $90,000. So insurance costs are going to be a massive part of that. And then the problem is going to be like, you know, are people going to want to go through the Red Sea or are they going to want to divert? And those, all of those aspects are going to end up, yeah, you know, in in some aspects pushing up, um, pushing up the cost of, of uh, shipping as well as like some commodities. But I think that it's more going to affect the Europeans. And then, I mean, even on top of that, like um some of europe uh their oil and gas it comes through like a pipeline which is like co-run um and it's called jehan and now like with everything going on between turkey and the kurds um last time this happened the kurds actually targeted jehan and then it disrupted oil flow for i think like a almost like a month and it it uh, you know affected the europeans not like extremely bad but it did push up uh the price of uh of oil for, more so for like southern europe i think about 60 percent of the exports from that pipeline if i remember correctly go to like italy and, and eastern europe uh and some southern european countries um so those guys would be more affected than like let's say like people in germany um but i mean yeah overall i do think that you know somewhat the geopolitical risk is going to play a big point um in higher commodity prices but i i don't think that it's the overall base case i think that you know, going into twenty twenty four, there's like more fundamental reasons that I think commodities should be structurally higher.
6: Fascinating, thank you. Yeah. Um the FT this morning and Forbes are both running stories about the oil price having gone up a bit and um, likely to go up more as Iran has um sent another let me see what it is. Uh Iran has sent yeah, another um ship into suez overnight um because the americans have gone in to defend the cargo that is going through because the iranians have already shot one mask vessel
1: yeah i mean i i think that the problem is going to just become like uh, those guys are just going to continue to do something until you know i I think everything and between the palestinians and the israelis and um but I, I I feel like they're only going to be radical to a point. And I, I know Schmuck talked about this as well, and I agree with him. It's just like they're going to do this until the point when the U.S. just is no longer constrained and says, you know, it, and they, they take care of business, bomb the Houthis, and then the Houthis, like, you know, retreat and decide that they don't want to play that game anymore, right? <laughs> the only reason they're doing that is because the U.S. Navy's been relatively constrained.
6: Thank you for that. Awesome
0: stuff, yeah. Um and then we had uh Michael Burry come up. Michael, what's going on? What you got for us? Michael got going once. Man, you're you're tempting me. I might just kick you down after this coming up here with this uh, you know, Matthew McConaughey University of Texas crap, dude. I mean Oh, I'm not sure if it's cut in or out. Ah, uh, there you mm. are. I can hear you now. I don't know. It might be my connection. Horns Hold down, on. dudes. I, I can hear you. Bears down. Nah, I saw him off, baby. Y'all go ahead. Let me try and figure this out. Sorry. All right. All I, was good. Good. Say was, for, for I don't fame. know if anybody can hear me, but uh, the
5: uh, ice route uh, to the Northwest um, what's it called? Northwest Passage, talking about uh, Maersk earlier. That's going to be, uh, well, one China is focused on that if we're talking about alternate trade routes. And, and we can talk about that for a long time, with this, you know, it's like an entire space worth of uh, geopolitical and logistical uh, conversation. Yeah, I can't I hear anybody. I might have them just dropped down.
6: Sorry, I've just seen an update that Maersk have said they're suspending all um, uh, traffic through Suez. Um, That's Forbes. That's one source. I don't know if anybody else has stood it up.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, um, I haven't heard anything else in regards to that. Um, So I don't know if we want to kind of keep going through that route or if we want to go back into a little bit of the real estate stuff because i thought what shane was saying was pretty pretty interesting ahead.
1: i wanted to ask shane a question because shane like for me and i guess this is kind of to money penny's point like um, I, I think most of y'all know, like, I'm an American. I'm, I'm just trapped in Canada working, so if anybody can save me. Uh no, <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, but, like, now that I've been working in Canada for, for about a year, when I look at the U.S. market, like, and I'm, I'm I am I mean, born and raised in South Carolina, so this is probably not like, I mean, I can't compare it to, like, in L.A., but the thing is, like, when you look at kind of the macro scale of, of um, of the United States because we have like, you know, 30-year fixed mortgages, um, you know, mortgages I think peaked at what, like 707 basis points I think was like the high on mortgages. And obviously, depending on credit profile, some people maybe still be qualifying at that rate even now. But like, you know, when you're looking at mortgages in the United States, I was looking at debt service ratios and like you had this parabolic move in, in mortgage rates, but debt service ratios never increased because, you know, if if you're locking in, uh, you know, a, a three year mortgage, um, or a 3% mortgage for 30 years, you're just not going to refinance. Um, and then if mortgage rates go up, you're just not going to go and, and apply to get a mortgage. So like, you know, now that mortgage rates are starting to come down and, um, you know, I, I was looking at kind of the overall deficit of homes in the United States, and I think the U.S. is short, like, 3 million homes given, you know, current household formation. It seems like all of this is pointing towards the fact that, like, the United States housing market should be relatively robust, which is, like, much different than Canada, for example, where, you know, the longest fixed-rate mortgage people can get is actually 10 years. Nobody really gets those. Most people have a five-year fixed or a five-year variable. And so, like, you know, there's a ton of banks right now that are sitting on, like, negative amortizations. And maybe for people who don't know what that means, it means that, like, all of your payment is just going to interest. It's not covering the principal. And so because of that, like, they extend your amortization out. Um, And, like, there were people in Canada who were getting, like, 92-year AMs right because like they they were negatively amortized and the only way to keep the payment the same was essentially to extend the amortization um and like i know now they were kind of getting in trouble for that but like you know in the u.s we don't have this problem we don't have the problem of trigger rates really right that was a big problem in the beginning of uh of the rate hiking cycle where people just kept hitting like triggers and you know their their um their payments were increasing if You know, banks weren't negatively amortizing. I think RBC and Scotia, if I remember, were the only two that didn't do negative amortizations. But like for everybody else who's now coming up on like renewals on five year fixed, like for those guys, like you're talking about a massive like rate shock, right? Where like your mortgage payment might go up 40, 50%. But like in the US, I don't feel like we have that problem. So like I know that there was a lot of pessimism around the United States housing market, but like, when I'm kind of looking at things, you know, where debt service ratios are, where the current inventory levels relative to like household formation is, it's like we have a deficit. Debt service ratios are flat. You know, yeah, sure, refinancing activities down, but you would expect that because who the fuck's going to refinance at a seven percent interest rate? Um, so kind of like, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Like, I, I feel that all of these structural supply shortages, et cetera. Um, that the builders kind of got themselves into after 2008 because, like, what essentially happened when I was looking at, like, guys like D.R. Horton was the builders who survived 2008 were like, okay, first we'll make sure that we get the permit and then we'll make sure that we sell the house before we actually start building. So if, you know, God forbid there's a recession, those guys don't want to be sitting on excess inventory. And so, like, a lot of the builders really smartened up. Because of that, they didn't bring on a lot of new supply because they were really trying to make sure houses were being sold before they actually started the builds. Um, and so, like, because of that, I feel like we're just in a, in a structural supply shortage. And I, I do think that that should push up, um, you know, Real estate prices, somewhat, in the United States going forward.
4: Well, <clears throat> residentially, because let's leave it on the residential side. Because commercial, we know that the commercial side of real estate has not the not an identical makeup to a Canadian, but it has things that that give it some of the lack of stability that that residential, you know, when that thirty-year mortgage has. But let's let me go. I want to hit something as a look like an example. of What you first just said housing formation everybody knows that if if you live in new york especially like new york city or maybe even san francisco you literally have lots of multi-generational houses where two three generations are living under the same roof here's what would blow your mind i saw a thing in denver the other day on that that is up 700 percent for us in the last four years so we now have a dramatic increase in people living under the same roof where whereas if it might have been one in ten houses that where you have two generations now you have more than one intended houses that have three generations under the same roof and so and, and we're not just talking about like kids and grandpa we're talking like great grandma grandpa and then the kid like adult is what is how this is being defined not just kids and so if that gets shaved off the top is it three million or is it like if 10% of that is newly, if there's a new expectation of what formation is, does that reduce that whole number by like maybe 10%, which would not be too far off in my opinion to see that number go down, maybe by like seven to 12%. In other words, Hey, we just don't see renting or buying a house in our near future. um, So we're going to wait until something happens where we can do that. And so now you just took out, you know, maybe a couple hundred thousand to 400,000 people that have just, that's their new expectation. Now, so that i see that because if you take each little factor of that it becomes harder and harder and more difficult to figure out what is the shortest that we're really dealing with now here's the other thing that's really interesting about that is if you go in the no growth and negative growth markets we have plenty of houses that are unoccupied that have been assessed you know yes there's a lot of them that are on a demo list but there are a lot of them that they've, they've made an assessment that within 15 to 20 percent of you know uh what the median rate house is in that area um, that you could bring that house back online so it's just people don't want them. People don't want to be in parts of Philadelphia. They want to be in parts of Chicago. They want to be in parts of Detroit. So if people embrace that narrative, does that change that 3 million? So I just want to throw those as kind of outlier factors to factor in that we're not embracing or not paying attention to because we don't have good history markers or factors on those. But everything else that you're saying, dear Macro, is hyper-relevant to the picture and what we need to be understanding better. And one of the things I think that's interesting is while Canada might be dealing with negative, um, you know, uh, amortization because these, the way these n- notes reset. And, and to be honest, there, I didn't know anything about that until I got on Clubhouse about three, three and a half years ago and started talking with a lot of colleagues from the U.K. and Canada. I didn't know their mortgages reset like that. Um, I had looked at values and kept track of stuff because my kids uh, have uh, their grandparents in Montreal. They have them in Long Gill outside of Montreal. But I'd never really paid attention to the financing of that because it was just something down the road that we might take a look at buying, and that was pre-divorce. And um, so I didn't realize that. But if you look at as an alternative problem um, with different dynamics but has the same problem, think about how many places in the U.S. that were 220 to 270 uh, coming into Corona that are now $400,000, give or take, coming out of Corona. So what I mean by that, and you being from Carolina, you know this is, that's a very, very real number. Like you had a lot of places in the Carolinas, you could go get a nice house, you know, in a neighborhood in the Carolinas for like, you know, low twos to high twos and coming out of Corona, post-Corona, that same house is now costing high threes to mid fours, right? Um, And I'm, you know, obviously I'm targeting a specific kind of neighborhood and a specific house. Pay attention that to my side as an operator we usually do things like A, B, C. So if I talk about a B, B B-plus neighborhood, I'm specifically targeting that neighborhood to kind of get that value point. So when you look at that, we still in some parts of the country have that dilemma. They have a problem of finance. We have a problem of price. Uh, We can have great financing and long-term financing, which is great to be able to, to set our clock by from a consumer standpoint, but it doesn't change the fact that the affordability narrative because that price has gone up is a big deal. So... We haven't seen kind of all of the collateral damage or fallout of what we can or can't afford um, because more people can afford what, more than what they're willing to buy as soon as interest rates adjust over the next 1% to 2%. But then not everybody's a believer, nor should they be, in their market. I'll give you a good example. Denver was really, really in a place where it should have corrected pre-corona. Okay, um, It should have either slowed down dramatically in a really hot neighborhood or it should have even come back maybe five or 10% in a neighborhood that wasn't so high demand and not so popular. Um, it didn't simply and only because interest rates got so low. Okay. And because there was some repositioning, repositioning of capital. So somebody that was in California or in Boston who could afford to make a lateral move because Boston and Denver might've been the same price, and same kind of neighborhood, or in California where you could still get more house in Denver, um, more so Denver Metro than Denver proper when we make that statement. You know, they're moving because all of a sudden they have the ability to co locate from their job, right? So, but all in all, Denver should not have had the push up in value that it did. Now, I'm going to give you some fresh stats that are just either under contract or recently closed in the last 100 days. But we literally have A minus and B plus neighborhoods that have seen actual deals, not just one or two offs, but several to a couple dozen deals, you know, literally hit uh, 12, 15, 18, 20%. Below, they would have sold to um, at kind of maybe the height of Corona. So someone that literally bought, and, you know, if I look at a neighborhood like kind of if you guys know St. Joe's right over in Denver, it's kind of sits between the new, between the zoo and downtown, you know, a decent house over there that would have been, you know, three bed, three, uh, three baths and maybe four bedrooms, you know, less than 3000 square feet, nicely remodeled. That's a million dollar house. Okay. in that kind of neighborhood. That I've seen some of those that went for 1.2, selling for 8.90, just to give you an example. Um, in most cases, stuff that was going for 1.1 is taking a haircut and now it's selling for like 9.50, 75 So you're looking at 10, 12, 13%. But the equity runway of Denver was ready to correct pre-Corona, and only the interest rates pushed it forward and created what I'll, I'll, I'll call, for lack of better description, um, in layman's terms, some sort of value bubble, right? That can be popped. If you look at the Denvers and the Seattles, they very much were in that situation. So was Miami. If you look at the Dallas's and Atlantas, they were getting closer to their equity runway, but they still had room to grow, but they closed a lot of that gap because that interest rate, those low interest rates created lower payments and allowed people to overbuy what they should have been buying for before, what they could have bought for previously. And then you also had equity-rich capital, especially in those markets. So, you know, the difference between a Dallas and a Atlanta um, and even a North Carolina is that that's not an expensive house for great amenities. Um, Whereas Denver, Boston, San Francisco, that's an expensive house. That million dollar house was costing, you know, three to 500 to $600,000 in those different markets. So your money went a long ways. We had a lot of people that were equity rich that went and bought those markets. So I just want to put some of those things which I've said in this, in this room before as outliers, as to things that I'm worried about. But when you talk about some of the big things that you touched on, dear, those are very much the concerns that I have. They just don't impact a slow growth or negative growth market in a B B neighborhood the same way they uh, they impact a strong growth market that had a lot of equity, um, a a lot of appreciation pre-corona, and then uh, kind of received what I'll call false appreciation or false value during corona, Um, they're not gonna have the same impact because that market is 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 very much geared for a setback and has been setting back. It has been, those, those prices have been rolling back. Those closings that have been going down have been pulling down those values, but are they really getting pulled down or should they have never been inflated in the first place might be the, the more relevant question. So the funny thing about everything you're saying is, of course, real estate is always very much area by area, but I would tell you that 85 to maybe 90% of, American real estate is going to be in one of three categories. And we've kind of talked about two different sides of that coin. You know, did you get heavy appreciation? Were you strong growth? Were you an expensive market to begin with? Because you have a much higher risk and you have probably a, a longer way to fall than a market that was not quite at its, uh, you know, height. And, you know, it has, still has an affordable house, even by today's standards. If you look at Atlanta, Dallas, and some of the Carolinas, uh, the, the stronger MSAs in places like that, even like uh, Houston and Texas, you know, these are pretty affordable markets when anybody that's coming from a, a stronger market comes to them. They're still saying, I can still get a good amount of house in, you know, Texas. I think what they think is the most, that was the most interesting turn in the last year of what we'll kind of call the heavy momentum part of Corona was really watching the Nashvilles and the Arkansas and the Alabamas really get some really good traction. Um, and if Alabama gets traction, how come Mississippi didn't do as well? Like, that's always the question, right? You would think those are similar markets. Alabama got a lot of love for investors, returns for values. Mississippi didn't get that same situation, right? Um, Oklahoma has been doing pretty good, but not Louisiana. Like you look at things that are similar, um, and Louisiana has its own things. its own mess. And so does Mississippi. If you go, if you dig into it, you can see why they didn't do as well. You know, why Mississippi didn't do as well as Alabama or why uh, Oklahoma did better than Louisiana as far as, you know, having similar prices and similar opportunities, but just having, you know, poor infrastructure, government issues, all kinds of things that landlords, investors, and homebuyers don't want to deal with. So I just think some of those things are interesting, but I wonder if you have a more specific thing that you want to on too, because those are a lot of great points that you just brought up too.
1: Well, like, so my whole thing is like, I look at some of these markets as, as you've mentioned, and I, because I know people, a lot of people are like, "Oh, well, real estate's just ridiculously overpriced." But I, I feel like it depends where you're where you're looking. Like my 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 residential home, like where 100% I hundred
4: percent on that.
1: Like where I live is is in Upstate South Carolina, and in, in Greenville, to be specific. And, and Greenville's market has been like extremely hot, right? Like whereas maybe before, like you know, like for. know what they call like cookie cutter homes you probably could have gotten one of those for 200 to two hundred and fifty thousand. like a a 20 to maybe like a two thousand square foot house that's like three bedrooms and you know uh on on like woodruff road you were probably looking at like 200 to 250. now those are in the fours but like i was looking at um a, a place called bakersville north carolina which is maybe an hour and a half north of Asheville. It, it it's near Johnson uh, Johnson City, Tennessee. But like you could get a house in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Bakerville, North Carolina. That's about two thousand square feet for like um, I I saw one for like two hundred and twenty thousand dollars, right? And so it's like there's still a lot of those markets in the Carolinas that still haven't been like massively uh, overinflated. But then like also the thing that I've noticed as well is COVID did cause this push where a lot of these markets like the Carolinas um, or the Sunbelt just, you know, went absolutely parabolic because, you know, you had a lot of migration flow. But at the same time, what I've noticed is I feel that a lot of that will kind of mitigate and, and start to become affordable again because... When I look at states like that, um, a lot of them have very laxed construction, um, like zoning and urban growth boundaries. And so it's not something like you have in a San Francisco or in certain parts of California, where there's a lot of regulatory um, oversight that goes into building new housing supply, which, you know, restricts elasticity. Um, Like those markets, I feel like, you know, people are like, oh, well, New York has to come down. And I know even some people are like, well, Toronto has to come down. And I agree, like Toronto will probably come down to a point. New York will come down to a point. But they will always have a floor just because a lot of markets like that that have a lot of regulatory oversight have like real restrictions that constrain essentially new housing supply but like when you look at a place like houston texas you don't have that right or when you look at some places in the sunbelt you don't have that um and so that's why i'm like i I know a lot like this is a problem with real estate because it's very like regionally focused and like even i could take south carolina divide it up into like eight quadrants and each quadrant is going to have a different real estate market right like if you go down on the east coast like my parents live in charleston if you go down to Charleston, Kiowa, Hilton Head, you know, Folly Speech, you're talking like $2 million homes, right? Like in the Carolinas. Um, if, if you go like, you know, up near Columbia, South Carolina, because one, it's hot as hell and who the fuck wants to live in Columbia, South Carolina? And two, you have to be a Gamecock fan. So again, who wants to live in Columbia, South Carolina? Like markets are pretty much flat. Like Columbia hasn't had a crazy um, housing market. But then if you go to upstate South Carolina, you know, the, the foothills, et cetera that's been much more hot and then if you go to kind of the the eastern side of the carolinas um it, again it's been flat so i i feel like that's kind of the problem when you ask questions about real estate because it's like if in the broad sense it's very hard to kind of get like an overall picture because it's going to be so dependent on the market etc but like i feel like last year there was a lot of bearishness around the real estate market but like just kind of looking at it i was like i, I felt that a lot of it was um, unjustified. And, and the great thing about the United States that Canada doesn't have is there's a lot of mobility, right? So, like, if you live in the Carolina, and this happened during COVID, like, people who were living in Atlanta um, or Charlotte, where, you know, housing markets were more expensive, moved into the Carolinas, whether it was, like, the, um, the, the Lake Kiwi area, or, you know, even like Greenville or Anderson or Spartanburg. There there was a lot of momentum in there. Um, you know, uh, and so I feel like there's a lot of kind of ability for people to, to move around. And as a function of that, you get, you know, fluctuations and kind of more of an equilibrium in U.S. housing markets than you get in things like Canada, where you really only have like Toronto, Montreal and, and Vancouver. But I know that that was more of a rambling than a real question. I, I just feel like it was like there there was so much negativity, but I, I just I felt like at the very high level or the macro level, I wasn't seeing it, right? We have a 30-year fixed mortgage. You know, people who locked in aren't going to refinance. Um, and like, you know, in the US, those guys are, are going to be okay because who's going to go and refinance at seven percent when they locked in at, you know, historically low interest rates? Um in the US, like nobody's going to do that. Whereas like to Money Penny's question earlier when she was talking about the UK or Canada that market's entirely different because of the way that the mortgage structure works, right? And so I just feel like, you know, there's still a lot of great markets. Like, I, I know a guy who found, like, a market somewhere in Arkansas, and he's earning, like, almost, I think, like, a 2% RV on, on you know, this market in Arkansas. So I, I feel like there is still a lot of opportunity. You just have to find... I feel like now in the US, if you want real good opportunity and you're like a real estate investor, you have to find those linear markets, right? And those linear markets will give you a hundred or two hundred basis point RV and you take it, right? Because I mean, like it's a great deal given the the overall aspect of things.
7: Well, yeah, here's a good example of something that I'm thinking about. You look, you know, look at value-driven amenities that a city or a region provides. So, you know. If you can get a really good priced house 45 minutes away from a city center that has, you know, a football team, an NHL team, you know, has a lovely downtown, um, has a decent airport, um, you know, every airport wants to be an international airport. I laugh at Gerald R. Ford, which is Grand Rapids, which I fly into 15 or 20 times a year to get the kids or see the kids because um, they, if you saw what that is compared to what DIA is, you wouldn't even, it's just, it's it's a joke. It's not really, and it doesn't really have any international destinations, not like Mexico or Caribbean. So when, what are the desired amenities that people will pay that extra money for? Um, you know, I personally um, have a really hard time uh, betting on towns unless they are very, very established in their kind of vacation tenure that are 45 minutes outside of, what I would call a mid-major MSA. So something, you know, in the Grand Rapids, Des Moines uh, department or bigger. Here's another thing that I was thinking about when you're talking macro is uh, Columbus and Grand Rapids, two of the stronger city MSAs in the Midwest. As far as performance, they've done everything right over the last 20, 30 years. They're ahead of the curve. They've got good job situation. They've got stability in their housing. Um, You know, when you look at uh, kind of what you might, for lack of a better description, let's just call it the way it is, kind of ghetto areas. They have, they don't have those uh, in anywhere near the kind of proportion, um, nor by size, nor by doors um, that the rest of the Midwest does. But here's the thing about both those markets: those are not markets that are going to be affected by the silver tsunami in any positive way. Okay, people are not moving back to those markets to retire. For every person that's moving back to go home to Grand Rapids or Columbus, there's somebody moving out to Florida or Arizona or Texas, okay? I used to keep saying the fat cat just to make it easy, and that was Florida, Arizona, Texas, you know, the Carolinas, Alabama, Tennessee. These, were the, these, these guys were getting most and all the action of that silver tsunami who either needs to relocate permanently or who wants a second address in a, in a sunny place, you know, most people will... Stay around for the holidays for the grandkids and then they take off for, you know, three to six months to live in their second nicer weathered home. The thing that's interesting about Missouri and Arkansas and Tennessee is they're cold in the winter, but they're moderate, you know, they don't. And, and you know, parts of North Carolina that are like this too, dear, where, you know, it, it's a little bit chilly, you know, it's not Florida all year long, but it's, 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 it's a mild winter, right? <clears throat> and so you have people that, you know, that. Who's being affected by the silver tsunami and who's not? Because that's a massive situation. That's a, a massive amount of people that have relocated in the last several years, a massive amount of people, even more people that are going to relocate in the next several years. So when you look at it from an investment standpoint, a cash flow standpoint or a rental standpoint, can you factor in as one of many that factor? You know, can you put part of the silver tsunami as coming into your market? And is there the appropriate, you know, are the builders addressing that to what you're talking about earlier? You know, are there the right amount of homes? Is that going to create, you know, where are they coming from? Are they coming from equity for markets that have more equity than yours so that they can impose their will? So, you know, if I'm moving from, you know, Boston and I'm moving to North Carolina, you know, I can impose my will. If I bought a house in a B neighborhood in Boston 10 years ago, I'm in a great shape. You know, I'm going to be able to go to North Carolina and buy something half to two thirds the price of what I have and get more house and maybe even get an upgrade um, and lots of things in a newer house and everything to go with it. You know, we're not going to argue about if those are the same kind of amenities that I might have, if I'm living, you know, over in the college area between, you know, Somerville over there with Harvard and all the great restaurants and, and, and then close to downtown Boston, we're not going to argue, you know, in detail, but if I still am in some place like, you know, Raleigh or, Concord, or you know, where I just have you know a nice little town, a nice house. I've got better weather, you know, the ability to you know go uh, see, you know, if, if is a college game just as good as seeing a, as, as just as seeing as the New England Patriots. I mean, those are questions that people have to ask in their lifestyle changes. But I want to go back to the the more easier thing to to, to notate, which is you know, Grand Rapids and Columbus. It is they're great markets that are doing really good in their their last ten years and the next ten years for real estate. But let's be real. They're not going to get any silver tsunami action. That's just not happening. People are not moving to Grand Rapids or Columbus, Ohio uh, to, you know, warm up during the wintertime. And when you look at the surveys, they all sit around 70, 75, 80 percent. So I always round it to like 75 percent to be in the middle of older people want to move to a a warmer environment. Are they going to be in a financial position based upon where they're at in life or based upon what's happening after Corona? That's a different question. Um, We can look into the math. But they, they don't, there's nothing that's going to impact those areas. So then the other thing I think that's interesting is what has the state done to prepare? Look at, I dropped on branding stage here. This is the first place that, this is the first time outside of private rooms or, you know, private Zoom calls or just even whispering to clients that I, that I, that I told people. You know, people kept asking me like, hey, where do you think the place is to be? over the next 10 years. And, and I said, if I had to break, you know, there's lots of MSAs, but Carolina, and North Carolina, I just feel like are the two states that are just going to really, really do well. That doesn't mean that every person in here is best suited to put their money in North Carolina, South Carolina. Let's go back to financial position and investment goals and risk tolerance. You know, you, there could be a better neighborhood in your backyard that will get you a better return. You can self-manage that, you can do things. It just means that if you look at the trajectory for the economies and, and where the real estate value is, Like what North Carolina gives you for the price that it gives you, you know, it hasn't. A lot of those markets in North Carolina have not hit where Atlanta is. And you might make an argument in some of those nicer neighborhoods in Atlanta. I'm not talking like luxury. I'm talking more just like middle class, upper middle class neighborhoods. That you know, there's there's a lot of there's still a good deal to be had in North Carolina on two levels. The first is where you can buy the house at. The second is how much more appreciation that house is going to give you over the next 10 years, right? So I think that's one of the things is that, you know, I've said uh, many times, you know, when you look at the Carolinas, they will have silver tsunami positive impact. Let's put it that way. They still have a price point that even coming out of Corona, to your point, dear, especially a lot of these places that you're mentioning and some of these places that are only 20 to 45 minutes away from what we're all gonna call from lack of a better description, civilization. And we're gonna call civilization something like, hey, do I have 300,000 people in my town? Is there a little mall Are there things like Chick-fil-A and Texas Roadhouse that everybody kind of recognizes these national Browns? Is there an olive garden? Is there a red lobster? You know, I'm not trying to say you love these restaurants. I'm just trying to say when a, when a town doesn't even have a McDonald's, that's, that's questionable for, for most of us. Not all of us are used to that kind of, you know, very, very removed uh, country living. So we're used to seeing some of those national chains and amenities that we have. So anytime, you know, there's a 350,000 to half million MSA or more, And and then maybe the bigger MSA is a two hour drive away. So if I really want to go get, you know, kind of that urban feel, um, that's and and my price point is half of of what it is somewhere else for similar amenities. I'm going to look at that and I'm really going to look at that because if you take a place like Loveland, which is, you know, 30 minutes from Fort Collins and an hour from Denver and, you know, it's still going to cost you like six hundred thousand dollars for a nice, you know, four bed, you know, and a half bath, you know, four bed, four bath house that's built nicely. I can go get that sucker with a similar proximity to two MSAs similar to that in North Carolina or South Carolina. And I could be at 300 all day long. And I'm talking nicer or newer built house with lots of nice amenities. That's what I just, I I give an apples to apples. I just looked at something for a client the other day. Um, I'm not going to spill the exact where, but it, there's similar proximity to those kinds of MSAs. And so, you know, when I look at the, the amenities that a city offers and then I look at the price difference for the barrier to entry, what am I getting? Um, and there's two ways to play the investor game. One is cash flow and one is appreciation. And I'm going to tell you right now that while cash flow is always important. I have started I have been successfully playing with clients in different markets the appreciation game for over a decade now. And the appreciation game for those of us who care about net worth and care about a faster retirement and care about Burr is definitely the place to favor. Cash flow where we at this point in time where it can be found at scale is usually a neighborhood that just comes with headaches and problems that I don't want into retirement and neither do most of my clients. So for most mm-hmm. of you that are more white collar or even Kind of blue collar, sophisticated, and you don't want to deal with all those problems. You know, gear your math towards the potential of appreciation with a cash flow safety net or underwrite, and not so much cash flow because the cash flow, is, you know, in that case. Now, if you want to be an affordable housing master, that's a great place to be. If you want to scale a good monopoly board, if you want to be Section Eight, you know, vendor rent, you know, nonprofit housing type vouchers um then scale c and you can you know that's a fast way to build up but that that's a lot of sweat equity you better have a daytime job that allows you to put a lot of time in your monopoly board if you're a working professional or don't want those hassles then push yourself more towards appreciation and that's probably the best way for you to play the game right now anyway brandon i'll hang around but you know i just i i love when dear david and you're up here because there are things that you guys say that trigger thoughts or see things that you say that stimulate thoughts and i always tell people about three chess boards right there's the There's the under chessboard of real estate, which is development and zoning and rental performance and operators. There's the main chessboard of real estate, which is value driven. And it's simply measured by what's the price, fair market price and what's the fair market rent. But that macro chessboard is, you know, things like interest rates and everything else that comes down and impacts us. And this stage and a lot of places on Twitter spaces have so much knowledge about the economic factors that indirectly or directly impact real estate. And I love to listen to and get that perspective when I come in here and see how that changes my thoughts or enhances what I'm thinking on the real estate market. So
4: anyway,
1: last, last point before you go, Shane, I mean like one market that I've always felt is very undervalued has been Charlotte. I mean, like if you think about Charlotte, you have FC Charlotte, you have the Panthers, you have the Hornets right and like i still think the median household in charlotte's like $395,000 for the median house price and like you know for people who don't know charlotte is actually the second biggest financial hub in the united states after wall street so like in terms of flows that go through financial markets charlotte is now the second biggest it's bigger than chicago it's bigger than san francisco so like Charlotte's a massive market, right? And I mean, given location, it's great. You have the lake. you know, you're close to the to the uh, um, Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is, um, you know, you get parts of the blue Ridge mountains and like for $380,000, I just feel like Charlotte's ex- not, please don't go and pump the real estate market in Charlotte because I like it. But, um, you know, like I, I do think that Charlotte's just been absolutely undervalued. Now, I mean, you have great schools there. You have UNC Charlotte, um, as well. So, um, and I think Wake Forest also has a, uh, as a campus in, in Charlotte. So I just always felt that Charlotte and, and Queens university, which is uh, on, on uh, South park, which is like a, a very wealthy area of Charlotte. Like I, I just always felt like for some reason, people neglected Charlotte and just given all the amenities as a city that it offers, um, you know, to uh, yeah, I, I guess essentially three professional sports teams. And I think they have like a minor league baseball team um, and given the, the kind of the college dynamic as well as, kind of the, the white-collar work that it offers. I, I just don't know why Charlotte is priced the way that it is.
4: You know,
7: look at Utah, Nebraska, Iowa. They don't have, nor have they ever, you know, a professional football team. So it just festers an even greater desire for fo- college football culture. What I'll say that's been interesting, and I dropped this in here a little bit before, but I'll give a little more insight to it right now, is, you know, you have a lot of, of um cities uh lincoln nebraska okay you've got nebraska the the football team there you know um that fills kind of their need for football nebraska's a a storied program you know i don't think they've been as good you know last 15 20 years since they lost um you know the legend over there of coach but you know i i I think that they it, it just kind of fills that need so People look at that as an amenity, and they, they replace it with college instead of pro. So in Charlotte, you got a professional basketball team, but to your point, look at the colleges that are around there. You know, Charlotte's almost a million as far as an MSA goes. I think it's around eight nine 900,000 people, and um, that's what I'm telling you. And the other thing I, I kind of I think that's interesting is amenities nowadays, guys, how are you defining them? Because I can tell you right now, a strong growth or good growth market could have a third or two thirds the population of an old kind of negative growth or no growth market. And because there's money, because there's life, because there's better jobs, because people are doing things at night, because there's even different, a different mentality. And especially when things like if you guys, if you've grown up in the Midwest or even in the Northeast, you guys know uh, having lived there for five or six years, you don't do a lot during winter. You know, I was out, you know, three days in the last seven days here in Denver, I was in shorts. You know, if you guys don't know what a Colorado winter is, I mean, yeah, we get cold, we get we get snow, but I was in shorts three out of the last seven days. You know, we had sun and people get out and they do stuff during winter. In Michigan, when I go over where my kids are at, the only thing you're doing in, in, in winter time is, you know, reading books, ice fishing, building snowmen or hunting. I mean, you're, just, you're not getting out and doing a lot of stuff in winter time. And so think about not only these places that have those uh, like a Carolina, where we have a more, or even Denver, where we have a, a, you know, a winter that's not as intense, you know, activities going on all the time. Money's being spent all the time. People are going out all the time. Um, you know, a lot of places in the Midwest and Northeast, after the holidays, a lot of these stores and um, restaurants won't see a lot of business until, you know, March, April, May, again, uh, they'll have two or three months that they just have to struggle through um, because people just aren't getting out. And so it's that weather dynamic, you know, the growth dynamic, college dynamic, all these things matter to, um, you know, what people are looking for and what they want. And the other thing I was pointing out is when you have a socioeconomic situation in a population where people who are retiring there or people who are making good money there, you know, are spending money there, then that creates kind of better amenities as far as restaurants and services that maybe be um, a bigger MSA that doesn't have vibrant job situation or an improving economic situation. Like, you know, I've I've been to, I have driven, like, you know, miles and miles in massive cities to find certain kind of niche boutique restaurants or services. That you know, I could have found in Denver within anywhere within like ten blocks from you know a half a mile, and 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 Charlotte is that way. It feels that way. Um, I haven't been down there for a long time, but even when I was there, and, and from what I'm seeing, it's just blowing my mind. Atlanta, you know, Nashville, all these places are having. There's so much vibrancy and um, what's going on, and people are drawn to that, obviously, right? Um, you know, there's cool restaurants anywhere you go in America but there's more of them in certain parts of America. And restaurant and retail are highly desirable amenities for people that want to pay more for a house. But for the bang for your buck that you get in North, North and South Carolina, it's very interesting. The one thing I was thinking about too, dear, is I don't know if you've been to Bentonville, Arkansas, but Jill, who's a colleague that comes in here with us sometimes and helps me out, uh, put Bentonville on my radar uh, when I went down with her a couple of years ago to kind of, uh, you know, discover everything that was close to her joplin tulsa and you know for those of you that are, this is lost on at this moment in time that's the headquarters for walmart well for a long time it was kind of the playbook that if you were going to be a uh if you were going to put something on walmart shelf you had to have a senior corporate officer you know there in bentonville and i guess that's not the case anymore but you know as a result of that you had a lot of high-end and nice stuff in that little town of bentonville that you just wouldn't find in you know, any old little MSA. And now some of that economic momentum and some of the cool amenities that are there have drawn people that don't have any um, attachment or connection with Walmart at all there. You know, it does have a moderate winter. Not everybody's trying to get out of winter altogether. They just don't want to scrape their car every day and freeze their butt off and have to dig out a couple of feet of snow. So sometimes just having a moderate winter where, you know, it's a little bit of snow or just a little bit of cold is, is plenty good enough for some people, especially, when it leaves them more money, they be able to go visit their friends in Florida and Arizona because they didn't spend a small fortune on the house. So all these factors kind of factor in.
0: All right. Yeah, I appreciate that. Great uh, breakdown there. dear. do you have anything else before we let Shane go? No, no, I think that's it. All right, Money Penny, I saw you had your hand up, um, so I'll give you the floor if you've got something.
6: Just a quick question. I wanted to grab them before they went. Uh, the rental market, I'm really interested in what's happening in the US. Um, in the UK, um, people who you know were buying a couple of extra properties rather than having a pension because you were getting 8 or 9% uh, return on your investment, um, they've been driven out of the market in mass um, form because of massive mortgage rates, uh, legislation by our government that has Forced them not to be able to get uh, tax rebates and uh, a variety of other things like huge energy costs, utility bills obviously having soared. So we have got 16, 18% uh, rental investment, uh, rental increases, um, which has meant a lot of uh, landlords have had to exit. Is that happening similarly in the US?
0: Shane, did you get that?
7: Uh, I don't know. What I, had, I saw I ran in the others, but I got the kind of the first part. You want to kind of summarize that real quick?
6: Yeah, massive um, shortage of rental property for your sort of young professional, um, but also for um, pretty much anybody who is denied a council or a state supplied home. Um, So the market is now so tight, there are so few rental properties, 16, 18% already increase in rents, uh, totally unaffordable, uh, just pushing people onto the streets or as you said, uh, pushing them back to live with parents or family or, you know, find a settee somewhere um, and getting uh, quite alarming as to how much the rental market is constricting.
2: I'm hearing okay
7: money penny I'm sorry man part accent part maybe the reception I have but do you want to just shorten that question down into one or two sentences? Yeah, it was basically yeah. like
0: is there is there less um less rental availability uh for like the young professionals like less affordability for that uh that demographic.
7: You know, what's interesting and it's funny that money penny's up here is one of the most fascinating things to me when I got onto social audio early in Clubhouse was hanging out in the real estate London stages and UK stages and listening to a model over there that they call, which is called HMO. And um, it's not medical, which is what we would think in the United States. It simply has to do with a village sanctioned property where you have the ability to rent out or lease room by room. And one of the things I think that we're pivoting into and have been pivoting into for a while, but I think we're getting better and better at it, is, you know, co co living situations. Um, so the question becomes at the end of the day, if you don't, if, if there isn't the inventory or if you don't want the expense, you know, like in Colorado, here's a good example. Um, do you want to spend $1,800 in a one bedroom in a, in a, in a certain kind of neighborhood, or would you rather spend 900 to a thousand dollars, um, and get your own room in that neighborhood with a hot tub, uh, you know, possibly, I don't know, you gotta, there's, there's a two car garage. So do you flip a coin to see who gets that garage or who doesn't? I don't know how you worked that out with your roommates, but possibly you get a, a place to park because in that $1,800, uh, one bedroom, half the time you don't get a, a, a covered parking situation. You and your roommates split a hot tub, you split a big kitchen, you know, you have a yard. Um, it's usually not a problem in those situations to have a dog, you just have to get along with your roommates. So the question is, do you save that $800? you know, put up with a couple of roommates. Um, what's interesting about the HMO situation in England is it seems even easier to not have to worry too much about your roommates. Yes, there's a, some probably some common kitchen rules, but they, a lot of times, a lot of the people that specialize in HMOs over there will give each person their own bathroom. So, you know, I think that becomes the new question. You know, it's very easy in Colorado to go less than a $1,000 a roommate, um, not too much less, but right around that, and, you know, you get you both have to share a bathroom, or there's two bathrooms in the house for four people, and you know the odds of both of them being used at the same time aren't as much. Or do you take that one bedroom house, but pay attention to for a young single professional, that's 90, you know, that's eight hundred dollars difference, that's ninety six hundred dollars a year, plus the utilities in those one bedrooms are a little more steep. So that person is very likely looking at a situation where they could be anywhere from ten to twelve thousand dollars more a year. Uh, if you're a young professional, you got college debts, even if you're making sixty, eighty thousand $80,000, you know, you got college debts, you got a car. I mean, do you want to spend right out the door $2,000 a month of your, you know, five, six, $7,000 a month off housing. And then you've got your debts. And then you, what if you have any credit card debts? I mean, you know, that money goes away fast. Plus you're single, plus you're not getting a lot of tax breaks, you know? So um, it, you know, that money penny, I think is the most interesting thing for the professionals right now is that co-living dynamic. Even what I'm noticing is even in, in slow growth and no growth markets where you could arguably get a cheaper house, those young professionals are choosing to be in more hip areas. So whether they're teaming up on a house or whether they're, you know, paying for, um, a really nice, uh, one bedroom, um, I think it's going to be interesting to see how that continues to go, because I think we have blue collar neighborhoods where you could easily have those young professionals living. They're just choosing not to live there as much unless they get married. Um, They're just wanting to either split a house up in a, a more boutique neighborhood or they're wanting to get that apartment. And so that has been changing dramatically. So tracking that as a builder, as a developer, as an investor it's, you're always behind the curve and trying to figure out what they're doing because at scale, they're choosing less than us to go what we'll call a more conventional, traditional route. So um, I don't have any answer directly for your question, just more framework to create questions on what you should be tracking. I know exactly what we're tracking in the areas where we're very interested in, um, but we're, we're, we're observing that working professional situation. And I think the biggest thing that we're doing is buying duplexes and triplexes and BB B plus neighborhoods where we are open to midterm rentals or we're open to room by room rentals in our future math or present math. So if we don't feel like we're going to get it today, are we going to get room by room rental tomorrow? We just did this actually in Cleveland. I won't say the neighborhood cause I don't want the whole world rushing there, but it was a very B oriented neighborhood. For those of you that know Case Western university, we're very close to that. And um, you know, we, the, my, the client and colleague that we're doing that, that I just went and helped get that house, you know, we're taking a really good look at, you know, when should we be changing that from a renting each triplex as a triplex? When should we be changing it, renting each level to uh, one lease to, to doing a room by room? And we're doing that exactly because of what you're talking about, money penny, because we want to um, provide for that working professional and we're betting on the fact that they want a nicer location, and they're willing to share a unit to get it, um, then they would go down the road and get an inferior location, or uh, go down, you know, down the block and spend a small fortune on having a one bedroom that's all to themselves.
6: Yes, exactly. But the main reason that that is happening, the actual economic reasoning behind that is because normally those people would be able to jump onto the housing ladder because they are the eager, assertive, up-and-coming entrepreneurs, but they cannot get on the housing ladder because you need a good wallop of 40-50 grand to be able to get, you know, 3-5% deposit to be able to do it so our government stepped in and put in this sort of mortgage-backed safety thing which they've just extended to 2025 which now means that the lender um, effectively gets the risk underwritten and covered if they only take a very very small deposit Um, Because what we're trying to do or what the UK is trying to do here is to stop millions, millions of these young professionals who now no longer can afford even those, you know, rental properties where they're squeezed up together um, to be able to get onto the housing ladder and at least start to be able to buy something. Because for the first time, really, you've got five year fixed mortgage rates cheaper than two year fixed under 4%. Um, which is so much cheaper than renting in an HMO. But if you haven't got your whack of a deposit, you're stuck. Um, that's the way it is, you know. And the worry is if it doesn't happen, we have got a huge swollen um, entrepreneur, young person and also every working person that, you know, has gone through a divorce is single, single person, no family, whatever it might be, that is uh, unable to cover the costs because the rental market has just rocketed and such a shortage of supply of good And property. And
3: MoneyPunny, I just have uh, two questions in relation to the UK, uh, like mortgage and or just real estate environment. Um, how many uh, mortgages do you know? I haven't done the research personally. Um, can, can you do? hear me, Money, MoneyPunny?
6: I've got you now. I I lost the first. Perfect. List, um, so I'm
3: just going to rephrase it. So considering the mortgage environment in the UK, how many uh, on average, like the aggregation of the 25 and 40 year mortgages that are offered by your institutions, how many clients or I should say uh, consumers do you think have uh, achieved and locked in those uh, fixed yields versus that of the newly purchasing demographic that's coming into play? Um, the reason why I'm asking that, and I'm just going to jump into it immediately and let you ask uh, let you answer that question is um, I, I, I do think that the UK and obviously Canada have similarities in the mortgage environment one of the things that occurred in the in Canada in relations to the global financial crisis in 2008 Stephen Harper allowed for a, a contingency plan by the fiscal environment uh, supporting the actual uh, banking institutions in the sense that he came in and a uh, created new reforms and regulations and now on a mortgage-backed security level 50% of all these mortgages are going Going to be um, insured by the government allowing for any forms of default risks to then just be delegated towards this fiscal environment um, which creates in itself some problems and obviously allowed for the bubble-esque type environment that we have within Canada um, and the majority of the mortgages in Canada and this is why I'm asking you the question is five-year fixed, a uh, five-year variable and after the five-year floating rate is done then they get a revisions towards their actual uh, mortgages um, and, and it's slightly like, like a, an important question in the relations to the UK, because obviously I don't have all the research and I haven't done appropriate research within the UK uh, environment. But if this is a similar scenario scenario that we're seeing within the the United Kingdom, then by definition it could call for for some forms of uh, let's say fiscal supporting in your mortgage environment, specifically on the MBSs and your your, your corporate MBSs, so mortgage-backed securities, right?
6: Right. So our government at the beginning of last year brought in legislation which has prevented lenders repossessing properties. So, you know, it's okay when you've got a, you know, a 7%, uh, I think there's probably more than that now, um, a debt overhang where people that were coming off a two or a five year fix that was, uh, you know, fixing at 2.99 three or five years ago were going on to a six, six and a half, which meant an increment, an average increment of another 500 pounds a month which in many cases was 80 to 150% increase. So we suddenly had a mass of huge repossessions on our hands if that had held. So the government had to step in, promise the lenders they would back it up for a period of time. And the lenders have been forced, and they still are, I think, until February, March. It would be extended until the next election we're about to have, in a few months' time, um, where lenders are not allowed to kick anybody out of their houses because there is so much default on it. We don't have any long term mortgages. We've probably got about 10% of the mortgage market will, uh, 10% of the mortgage market that is not on a standard variable will be on um, a 10 year, uh, a five a year fix. But 2% on a 10 year, we don't have anything beyond a 10 year. People are talking about doing 20 years and all the rest of it. I mean, there's just pie in the sky at the moment. Um, but even when we started offering 10 years um, fixed rates, um, British, British people don 't like it they don 't like to be locked in they don't they're too scared to do that they, do, they don 't see it as something that they can ever get out of they're very afraid of the you know the, uh, the chance that something's going to change in their lives. They just do not go for it in the same way the, the u s seem to have more appetite for it so you know we're all two and three year fixes eighty percent of the fixed market is two and three year fixes, and that leads to a huge amount of volatility for the lenders as well. So you're right, we have to look at the fiscal things. Well, the government came in and fiscally tweaked everything to stop the uh, buy to lets the second home buyer market um, from being able to advantage that so that the um, uh, writing off tax uh, the writing off your mortgage payments against tax for a second home or you know a buy to let or the little landlords that have got a couple of properties all that was taken away which um, just created this huge great big drop in the rental property market forcing people to go out and buy, and then suddenly the rates went up 4% in six months or whatever it was, and you know the rest of it, Um, yeah. Yeah,
3: that's what we call uh, (laughs) bottlenecking a whole uh, real estate market and making it so that it's uh, less affordable for especially your lower-waged income earners and the the middle class attempting to actually achieve a a, a more sustainable lifestyle, right, Um, especially in the United Kingdom. I could only assume the complexities arise
6: there. (laughs) The good news is the property prices are up. I mean, property prices are up in the UK. Not only are we not going down; it's pretty stable. And in the rural areas, we're talking six eight percent growth in some areas. Um, you know, it's it's
3: it's rosy. Yeah, rosy for the asset owners, right? Like ooh, that 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 wealth effect is certainly
0: created.
6: Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah.
0: This has been a great conversation here, but I am hitting the wall a little bit, so we're going to wrap it up here. I start these spaces every Tuesday night with David, my co-host, at 8 p.m. Eastern time, and then we rip rip and run for a couple hours. So I appreciate everybody coming in to the first one of 24. We had a great breakdown from Deer Point at the beginning. Um, and then a great real estate talk here for uh, multiple regions of the world. So thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. This is also recorded, so feel free to share this one about. And uh, everybody have a great rest of your night. And
3: Green Candle, was an absolute pleasure. Well played for 2023. I know we had a a many great deal of spaces, and it was always a pleasure. And 2024 is only going to bring up uh, some more content and uh, some more, let's say, financial analysis, right?
0: Amen, brother. Amen. Big things ahead. Here we go.